Amen. Well, again, we're glad everybody's here. Um, it seems like every week God brings people here to worship together uh, here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. We're glad to have everybody here. We are missing some, uh, again, because of a sickness, but let's pray for them. If everybody was here, we'd probably have another 10, wouldn't we? 10 or 15, thereabouts. Everybody's sick. Yeah, Bill and Kathy are traveling. I forgot about them. Pray for Bill and Kathy. Bill and Camp, they are traveling this weekend to see their daughter, North Carolina. So pray for them uh, for safe travels. Uh, I'm going to ask that we pray also that the Lord protects this uh, church body from sickness this winter. Uh, amen. It seems like uh, the, the, the flu bug and the stomach bug have taken over. And let's pray that the Lord would protect His flock from that this winter. If you will, turn with me to the book of Titus. We have been finishing up our uh, sermon series in uh, the book of uh, 1 Peter. And a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter was challenging the churches. Primarily at that point in chapter 5, he was challenging the, the elders of the church to protect the flock. And this is from, from them on last week and this week. We've been focusing on what does the Scripture say about leadership in the church. The reason I think this is important is because as we are a new church, now we are one year old, it is important for us as a church to get a biblical understanding of how the church is formed. What is the structure of the church? Leadership is one of the key elements here. Without a good shepherd, we are no one. And I do not say, look at me as the good shepherd. We look to Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. Remember last week, John chapter 10, we looked at the model of the good shepherd, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now I want to take a look at the, uh, the letter of Titus, uh, the letter from the Apostle Paul to his uh, uh, his son in the faith, Titus. We, we, we often think about Timothy as that spiritual son of Paul, and he is, but oftentimes we forget that Paul also called Titus his spiritual son in the faith. And I want to take a look briefly at this letter to understand what Paul is challenging Titus to do on the island of Crete. And then next week I want to unpack... Um, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for elder, and then the week after that, uh, the qualifications for deacon, and try to understand these different roles in the church from Scripture. What is an elder? What is a deacon? What are their responsibilities? And then from there, uh, after the Christmas uh, season, I want us to also look at what it looks like to uh, be members of a church. Um and then there's other things that we'll work through in the next six months or so from Scripture as we really lay some good foundations this next come, this next year as a church. Because without solid foundations as a church body, the church will fall. Right? Amen? So many churches start with a flash in the pan and then just as quickly as they lit up brightly, they fade. And we have been taking this Journey with the Lord one step at a time. Um, I thank you for your patience, but I think this is important for us to understand exactly where we are as God's people, who we are as a church, because we want to be biblical. Amen? 
We want to follow God's direction in Scripture. So, if you can, turn to the book of Titus and please stand as we read God's Word together. Beginning chapter 1, verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes to his brother Titus. He says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Let's pray. Dear God, Your Word is always trustworthy. Your Word is always worthy of teaching. And we, dear God, as Your people, must listen. Even the shepherds that You established for your church are also students. They must listen and learn from you directly, Father, through your word so that they can then shepherd and guide your church as you expect. Father, this morning I pray that you would teach us and speak to us through the words of your servant Paul to Titus about establishing leadership in the churches for the sake of your kingdom. Not for anyone to be a dictator, not for anyone to be lorded over, but instead for the church to be shepherded, to be guided, to be given direction. Lord, this is a a, a very serious calling, but a very important one for your church. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word, not just today, but in the coming weeks, as we understand your intent for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Let's understand a little bit here about Paul's letter to Titus. But in connection with what we've looked at in the last two weeks, remember 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter challenges the elders of the church to protect the flock in the midst of persecution and suffering in the diaspora of the church. Last week, the... The Apostle John records the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who teaches us the model shepherd for His people. Jesus Himself is the Good Shepherd. And that Good Shepherd really can be translated the model shepherd or the ideal shepherd that all leaders should emulate because Jesus was condemning the Pharisees of the temple who were just in it for their own glory and their own gain. And Jesus was telling uh, his, his people in John chapter 10, 
I am the good shepherd. And he was saying this as an, as, as a rebuttal against the leaders of the synagogue and the leaders of the temple, how they were distorting their calling as leaders. Now here in the letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus, we see, we see Paul writing to someone that he holds dear, someone that he has mentored, someone who has worked with Paul in missionary service. This is a small letter. It's a short letter. It's only three chapters. You could actually read this in one sitting. In about five minutes, you could read the entire letter. But there's so much packed, and now, you know, and maybe perhaps in the future we'll come back to this and, and preach several sermons just through the entire letter. Uh, but today I want to focus on the, number one, the theme of, of this letter, but also the focus here on the elders, because this is the main point from Paul. Let's understand the background here for this wonderful uh, epistle. The background here is of Paul's relationship to Titus. Right? Paul was clearly Perhaps he is perhaps the greatest apostle of the church. Many would argue that perhaps Peter is, but I'm going to say Paul was. (laughs) Paul and Peter worked simultaneously together. They both had their role. Peter is definitely considered the rock of the church, no doubt about it. Uh, But Paul, he he, he thought for the church. In other words, as the church was being established uh, in the earliest days, and the church was wrestling with who we are as this new faith. Who is this Jesus that we follow? Who is this Jesus that we worship? That was a mystery. It was a, it was a mystery of the gospel because it was beyond our human comprehension. It was Paul who helped us think. When you read the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, that right there is a systematic theology that would take a couple of years to really unpack. But Paul here also emulates by example what it means to be a good shepherd, to be a good leader. In his missionary journeys to the Gentile nations, in Paul's uh, travels around what we call now modern Europe, modern-day Europe, Macedonia, uh, Greece, all around the Mediterranean, in the Turkey, the Apostle Paul takes people with him. Paul never travels by himself in the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts and his missionary journeys, you will see that Paul always takes a cohort with him. And there's a, there's a point in the book of Acts where the, the language shifts from third person uh, to first person, where it now begins to talk about we. When we went somewhere, when we went there, that's ind- indicating that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also traveled with Paul. Titus here is very clearly someone who traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, that Paul mentored and rose up as a, a spiritual son in the faith. Because he says in verse 4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Titus clearly served in Paul's missionary journeys. At, at some point they went to the island of Crete. And we see, I mean, we, could, we only have a, two clear expressions of Believers on the island of Crete uh, at uh, at the day of Pentecost, it is is told to us that there were those Cretes who were also present there when when on the day of Pentecost, all the various languages of the world were spoken and heard and understood by the people in Jerusalem that day. It is mentioned in Acts chapter two and three that the island of Crete that there were people from the island of Crete there, perhaps. 
from the day of Pentecost, those from the island of Crete who experienced the Holy Spirit went back to their homes on the island of Crete and established churches. Also in Acts chapter 27, at the end of the book of Acts, we read Paul's journey to Rome as he is actually imprisoned and on his way to see the emperor in Rome. We read in Acts chapter 27 that their uh, their ship actually stopped in a storm on near the island of Crete in a place called Fairhaven. We don't know exactly how Titus got there. We just know from this letter that Paul the Apostle established Titus over the island of Crete to shepherd and mentor the churches. And so this letter is to Titus encouraging him in this. So who are the Cretans? We have to understand the island of Crete's uh, background here to understand why Paul is telling Titus to establish elders here and overseers over the churches. Who are the Cretans? We, We know that the Cretans had a tradition and a reputation of being liars, of being corrupt. We see this here in verse 12 in chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, how would you like to be a pastor called to that ministry? You are going to be called to go to a place where they have the reputation of being liars and gluttons and evil beasts. That's your ministry. Anybody ready to sign up for that one? I don't know that. I, I, I'm not saying. You know, I love you guys. You are not evil. You are not lazy gluttons. You are not. You don't have the reputation of being liars. But you, you see where we're going. I mean, this is what Titus is dealing with. He is called to this island of Crete where they have a reputation for this. Now, this is not just a recent reputation here. Uh, the, the, Crete, the island of Crete for generations and for centuries had this reputation in Greek culture. The island of Crete was a place where the liars and the gluttons and the evil people lived. That was their reputation. And God in His divine wisdom and perhaps in, even in His divine humor establishes churches amongst these kind of people. Do you think they might have needed some shepherds? Do you think they might have needed some godly leadership? Because what happens when lazy, evil liars get together? What do they do? They continue to be lazy. They continue to lie. They continue to cheat. No matter how much the gospel has transformed them, uh, without a little bit of guidance from the Lord, that's going to continue. The quote here in verse 12 of Titus chapter 1 comes from one of their uh, of the Cretes famous philosopher poets uh, Epimenides he lived around 600 BC right around uh, just actually right just after the time of Socrates and Aristotle so he was a very popular and very well read and well quoted philosopher poet in Greek culture and Paul clearly knew the writings of Epimenides as he cites him here in chapter 1 of the letter of Titus Paul also cites Epimenides in Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul is actually speaking to uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, when he was right, when he was teaching and being challenged by uh, the the great thinkers of Athens. He cites Epimenides there. You see, Paul would actually use Greek culture to teach truths to the Greek culture, teach the truth of God's. God's gospel through the writings and the thinking of their own philosophers and poets. 
But even, but here, here's the, here's the irony here in Titus chapter 1 verse 12. Epimenides was himself from the island of Crete. Those who were from the island of Crete had the reputation of being lazy, evil, and liars. So here's the paradox with this quote from Epimenides. If Epimenides himself is from Crete, is he himself lying about the people of Crete being a liar? You see where we're going? That's kind of the philosophical paradox. If he's from Crete and he's calling all Cretans liars, is he himself a liar? There was a tension there. Let's look here down in verses 10 and 12. Titus is expected to appoint elders from this crop of new Christians in the faith here on the island of Crete. What does Paul do? Paul charges Titus to do two things. Number one, he challenges Titus. He says, you are to position good teachers amongst the churches on the island of Crete. Not just one church, many churches. This was a a broad place. It was a very big land mass. This was a place of probably 50 to 100 churches, perhaps scattered small churches throughout the area. They had no oversight. They had no leadership. Paul said to Titus, you are to raise up and position good teachers in the model of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. That's the first thing. The second thing he says, after you establish these teachers, the second thing is teach the truth. Because these lazy, lying Cretans needed teaching. They needed encouragement. They needed direction in the model of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget, it is after the model of the good shepherd Jesus Christ that all of this is to take place. Now, what does this look like? The theme here is that he he tells Titus that you must appoint elders and overseers. Let's take a look at what those are. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Clearly, there was a disorder happening in the churches. And so Titus is charged with establishing order. And he establishes order in verse 5, by appointing elders in every town as I directed you. What is an elder? This is a a term that many people, especially in the Baptist tradition, that we are, we are Southern Baptists, when we hear the word elder, we cringe. This is a biblical term. It's nothing to be afraid of. Why do we cringe on it? Here's why I think we cringe on this. The word here in chapter 5 that is translated elder, where Titus is challenged and charged to appoint elders, the word here is presbyteros, the Greek word that we get presbyterian from. That's why Baptists cringe, because they think we're turning into a Presbyterian church. That's really what happens. People don't realize, but that's what they're scared of. The term presbyterian literally means a form of church government that has elders. Now, in the earliest days of Baptist doctrine and Baptist life, the churches had elders. <laughs> now we call them deacons. Deacons actually act like elders in the Baptist churches. And if they're going to act like elders, let's call them elders and let's not call them deacons because then things get confused. That's why over the next couple of weeks, I want us to really understand the two different offices of elder and deacon from Scripture. Because we have gotten those so confused, especially in Baptist circles, that people react in ways that they don't realize is wrong. The idea of the elder here, according to Paul, 
is somebody who comes in to a disorder and establishes order. Now, but, but how does this happen? Now, you and I, anybody here a supervisor at work? Anybody? Yeah, you supervisor. How do you how do you maintain order as a supervisor? You have certain expectations. You have authority. Uh, hopefully, Caleb doesn't come in there like a dictator and say, you're going to do what I say or else, or you're fired. Right? Now, in the military, you know, today is uh, Veterans Day. In the military, you do it the military way or else. That's not what Paul wants Titus to do. As he charges Titus to establish elders, he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Verse 6, here's how the elder is supposed to be. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That right there is the first series of qualifications for somebody to be appointed as an elder. What does this look like? You see, what we've got here is we have elders and we have overseers here. And these elders are to be appointed as good teachers. The characteristics of an elder here can be understood in, 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 in particularly one particular way. The word here, presbyteros, literally can be uh, translated and understood as one with dignity. And actually, age is implied here because the term in the Greek culture would have been referred to anyone of age. A man of older stature who had lived life, who had experienced some things, made his mistakes, matured from them, and had an, an, an attitude and a presence of wisdom. Now, does this mean that all elders have to reach a certain age to be considered? If that were the case, I think Scripture would have spelled out. You cannot call someone as an elder until they're X years old. I don't know. The imp- implication here is not necessarily someone has to be a particular age, but perhaps their maturity and their wisdom needs to be that of a wise person, a wise man, someone who has some wisdom in his years. What does Paul say here about this elder? Number one, in verse 6, anyone who is above reproach. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but what does it mean to be above reproach? That means that you do not have the reputation that embarrasses the gospel. You don't have that reputation as a bully. Whatever you do in your private life and in your home life and in your work life does not bring shame to the gospel. That's what it means to be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Now clearly here in verse 6, ladies, as much as I respect your wisdom and as much as I respect how you manage homes and families and even jobs, verse 6 makes it real clear the elder is to be a husband. A husband of one wife. That implies a man. Now, does this mean that an elder must be married? I don't think that's implied, I don't think that's the primary meaning here. Because if an elder had to be married, if that was a requirement of an elder to be married, then Paul himself, who's writing this letter, would have been disqualified. He was not married. Jesus himself, the model good shepherd, was not married. So we cannot understand this that an elder has to be married. I was the deacon of, I was a deacon in a church many years ago. 
Um, and my first wife passed away from cancer when I was 34. And I was on the deacon board. I had been on the deacon board about a year at that point. And my first wife passed away. I was suddenly single. I was a single dad. And the deacons had a private meeting to vote whether or not I was still biblically qualified to continue as a deacon because I was no longer married. That's not what this text means. That you have to be married. The Lord has granted me a lovely wife now in Rhonda. And she helped me raise our boys. But this mean, this text means, this passage, even though it does not require that an elder be married, it does imply his home life, his family life, must model Christ. If he is a husband, he is loyal and faithful to one wife. This is another interpretation of this text, that someone who is a deacon or an elder can only be married to one wife. Now, this is not uh, this is not proclaiming uh, polygamy here. <laughs> Paul is not saying we're not saying that uh, that you can go out and have as many wives as you want. No. Nor would I say that a qualified elder from this list is someone who has been married multiple times. I would say right there we would have to question, okay, what is his integrity uh, if he can't Maintain a marriage, if you can't maintain a family, if it's a multiple divorce situation, maybe we need to take into account his character. But we do understand that that widowhood does happen. Men are become widowed. Does that mean that if he remarries, he's now married to more than one wife and he cannot be an elder? I don't think that's implied here. The one thing that I can say is this. The fact that someone has been divorced before, I do not think automatically disqualifies them from this qualification as elder. Now, in the Cretan culture, we have to admit that, it, that in, since he's writing about the island of Crete here in the Greek culture, divorce was not common. So that would have never really even been a thought in this list. Um... Likewise, uh, those in the Cretan culture, they were, they did not practice polygamies as a rule. So it wasn't that Paul was trying to establish some dis- uh, radically different thing. Now, Paul could be implying a prohibitation of divorce, right? I mean, divorce could be implied here, but this is not Paul's main point. I think that's the problem. If we get so wrapped up that someone has gone through a divorce and we miss the point of the person's character and his faithfulness to his wife and his loyalty to the church, if we miss that, then we've missed the main point of this text. If someone has been divorced, a man who is being seen as a potential elder in the church, if he has been divorced, that definitely needs to be considered. Needs to be looked at, needs to be prayed about, and needs to be studied and and, and prayed through. But perhaps the person was divorced when he was 18 years old and that young 18-year-old wife just left him. You're going to hold him accountable for the rest of his life and never can serve in ministry because something happened when he was 18? Perhaps, again, like I said, his wife left him. Is he to be held responsible for that? So we have to take each situation case by case here. The point from Paul is not that you have to be married to one woman the whole life. 
What he means here is if you're married, you're loyal to one. <laughs> you're not out carousing in the, in the bars and in the streets and going to finding girlfriends and bringing reproach against yourself and the faith. He's talking about the quality of the elder is his home life, his family life. Is he faithful to his spouse? Is he faithful to his family? That's the point here in the text. The second thing that Paul brings out here in verses 7 and 8. Well, let me back up here in verse 6 because I do want to touch on this too. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul says this about the qualification of elder. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Does this mean that one called to the eldership must have children who are believing Christians? There are some who would say that an elder's children must all be Christians. Now, if that is the case, are we going to make sure that someone who has toddlers, those toddlers have to be believing Christians in order for someone to serve in eldership? That's going to be difficult. Because if God is moving, and this is the point, if the Holy Spirit is moving and calling a young person to this role, number one, we would be cautious because the idea of elder is someone of age. But they could have young children. Are we going to hold this leader responsible for whether or not a young child is saved or not? Whose responsibility is it to call any person of any age to salvation? It's not the elder. It's Jesus Christ himself and the Holy Spirit that draws that sinful soul to salvation. So to lay that responsibility solely on the elder is, I think, a little bit too strict. But I think the implication here in verse 6 is you must look at that elder's family and are his children faithful to their father? Are these children faithful to worship with their families? Are these children respectable? Are these children under control? Or are these children wild? What's the joke about the deacon's kids and the preacher's kids? The joke is they're the meanest ones in town. That's kind of the joke, but that's a sad joke because all jokes have a little bit of truth to them. So anyone who is called to be an elder must be respected in his family. His family must love him, respect him, honor him. The elder must not be a dictator over his family, but must lead his family as the good shepherd should. If he cannot lead his family, he cannot lead the church. That's the point here in verse 6. Now, we spent a lot of time there. Let's move on to verse 7. Now, Paul looks in verse 7, and, and he's using, he shifts to a different word here, but he's implying the same thing. In verse 5, he uses the word elder, which is presbyteros. But in verse 7, he now says, for an overseer, and this is a different word. This is the word episcopon, which we get episcopalian from. <laughs> an overseer. This is a little bit different, but in verse five and six, we're, uh, five and seven, we're seeing two different terms for the same office of elder overseer. Not only must an elder be one of dignity and respect, but in verse seven, this overseer, this episcopon, must actually be someone who is the guardian of the gospel. The guardian of the gospel. That's what's implied here in verse seven. For an overseer or episcopon is God's steward, must be above reproach. 
His relationship with others is what we're talking about here. His relationship in the community. His relationship with others in the church. His relationship with his employer. His relationship with people in general must look a certain way and but actually be of high character. He must not be overbearing. He must not be, another translation, he must not be arrogant. We do not need leaders, elders in the church, who are prideful and full of themselves <laughs> and serving their own needs and their own reputations. The elder must also not be quick-tempered. That's a very important thing. Why is that important? Anyone who is called to the elder role who is a hothead is someone who will not have the patience to work through difficult solutions. If you've ever served on a leadership committee of any kind, whether it be in a church, whether it be at work, whether it be in another organization, whenever there are difficult problems to solve, it takes calmness. It takes people with good character and good wisdom and good thinking and not ra- not reacting in a hot flash all the time. Now, does that mean that the elder cannot sin ever by losing their temper? If that's the case, I don't think we would ever have anybody in the church, much less in leadership. We all sin. We all fail. The question is, This man cannot have the temperament of being a hothead. Must not have the temperament of always demanding and barking orders. That's what we're talking about here. Whenever someone of an elder quality does perhaps lose his temper, because it can happen, does he quickly try to resolve that problem and ask for forgiveness? But now, if it's a routine thing, that's a problem. But if it happens from time to time under stress or whatever, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. But clearly, nobody wants to be led by somebody who's a hothead. Nobody wants to be led by somebody who is arrogant. That's what we're talking about here. In verse 7, he continues, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Verse 8, but he must be hospitable. A lover of good. This is the third point. An elder must have love of what is good. I mean, just really his whole being must be, he's, he's wanting the good and the best for everything. What does it mean to be good? Clearly, if Jesus is the good shepherd, then everything that the elder loves, the man who is called to this role as elder, must love everything that Jesus loves. Now, this theme of of loving the good is a theme that Paul writes about through the rest of the letter. See, we're only focusing on the first section here of the letter, but the majority of this letter is written to the rest of the church, and he is challenging the members of the church as well. You must love that which is good. In in chapter 2, verse 3, he calls the older women to teach what is good. Titus himself is challenged in chapter 2, verse 7, to actually be a model of what is good. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that the church itself, the church as a whole, is to do good. So if that's the case, the leader of the church, the leader of the congregation 
must model good, and, and in order to model the good, must actually love what is good as part of who he is as a person. Moving on here in, in verse uh, verses 6 and 7 as well. Paul says that he must be blameless. That's what it means to be above reproach. This idea of being blameless or, or being above reproach is a point that Paul mentions twice in this text. An elder must be someone of a reputation that no one can look at his reputation and blame him for anything that is wrong. He must be so above reproach that if charges come against him, the first instance should be, that can't be who you're talking about. Right? Do we not see a problem in the church as a whole where there are... Well, right now in the Catholic Church, they are dealing once again with priests in the priesthood doing horrendous things to children. We know we know scandal after scandal after scandal in the church. That is why Paul says the elder must be above reproach, must be blameless. His life must be so above reproach, not necessarily perfect and holy all the time, but so in love with Jesus Christ and so in love with the gospel and so in love with shepherding and teaching the people that if any charges comes against him, there would have to be a question of doubt. That can't be him. Because anything that an elder does that brings shame to the gospel automatically disqualifies him in leadership. Period. That's nothing harsh. That's just biblical. Any elder whose life does not bring glory to the gospel is one who is bringing shame to the gospel. And if that's the case, he has then lost his right and his title and should step down. I do think churches are correct in removing leaders when necessary. Church body, if you ever see me do something that is shameful and bring shame to the gospel, you have every right to hold me accountable. That's so different from the secular world of leadership, isn't it? Anybody ever work for some bosses that you think, boy, your character, your morality is just awful. But there's nothing you can do as an employee because they're the boss. That is not what Paul says here about the church. Not once. The leader must be above reproach. Now, that does not mean that the church body can just willy-nilly remove a pastor because he preached something that made them feel uncomfortable. Because what is the call of the elder? Not only does Paul charge uh, Titus to uh, ordain and call good teachers, he challenges these teachers and these elders to teach the truth. If the elder is actually doing his job and teaching the truth, if the people in the church get their feelings hurt, it's not the elder causing the pain. It's Jesus Christ in His gospel charging, uh, causing the pain. So do you remove God's elder? Do you remove God's leader and shepherd because what he preaches from the gospel hurts your feelings? That's the struggle of this role. The elder must teach the truth, and sometimes the the truth hurts. The elder is oftentimes a bullseye. And if he loves the sheep, he's going to take those arrows every time. Because when he teaches, and finally in verse 9, the elder must defend the gospel. Look here in verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right there in verse 9 we see the primary purpose of the elder, and that is to teach. An elder must not only have the character described here, must not only love the gospel as described here and as modeled by Jesus Christ himself, you could say John chapter 10, but the elder must also be able to teach. That's his calling. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Number one, you can't teach what you don't know. (laughs) You cannot teach what you do not live. Many people have dreams of grandeur to stand in the pulpit. But they can't preach themselves out of a paper bag. The people in the pews are cringing every time he speaks because they just, oh, I love him. I don't want to hurt his heart, hurt his feelings, but he can't preach. You know some people like that? It's kind of like Caleb knows some folks who want to sing and bring songs to the church, right? You ever, you know, those lovely, lovely people who really want to sing praises to the Lord and you want to really honor them and love them and, but they can't sing a note? There's a balance there, right? You want to encourage them, you want to, you know, maybe you can sing in the choir, right? Where other people can sing with you. See where we're going? So, it's one thing if you have this dream of being a preacher, teacher, pastor, elder, but you can't teach the gospel. You may know the gospel, you may love the gospel, but you can't teach it. Now, teaching comes in a lot of different ways. Teaching just doesn't primarily come from the pulpit. Even though I would argue that the elder's role primarily is teaching from the pulpit. But an elder, I think, can also teach by example. An elder can teach in a Bible study. An elder can teach in a school. I think that's very important too. But there is also, but even all of those scenarios, teaching in a small group or a Sunday school class or teaching in a school, that still requires teaching in public. That still requires teaching a group of people. If you do not have that skill or that confidence in the faith, then perhaps they're not called to be an elder. What does this look like? See, the elder here is called to teach. He's called to teach two different people. He's called to teach the false teachers, verse 15 and 16. The elder is, that, that Titus is to establish, the elders are to teach against the false teachers first. Because there were problematic people in the churches of Crete. Are there problematic people in the churches today? We've got some problematic people teaching wrong things in the church. The elder is responsible to teach these false teachers what they're not teaching correctly. Also, in chapter 3, verse 9, look at that for me. Chapter 3, verse 9, and we're going to close here in just a second. Chapter 3, verse 9. Paul tells Titus directly, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, he's writing this to the people of the church. He's writing this to Titus, the elder of the church. He's writing this to the elders and those who are called to teach. You avoid foolish controversies. Any elder who spends his time in promoting controversies and conflict is someone who is not called to that office of elder. 
Anyone who would rather be involved in political gossip and political controversies more so than teaching the gospel, I think there's a, there's, there's a challenge there to their eldership. The elder is not called to be political and to go into controversies and conspiracies. He's called to teach the truth of the gospel. This is why when people come to me with controversies from the internet, number one, it came from the internet. Can we say amen? When it comes from Facebook, I just shut down right there. I just don't tell me. When it comes from the internet, I don't want to know. Because the elder is to be above reproach. The elder is to avoid foolish controversies. The elder doesn't need to be sucked into that kind of stuff. Because the elder needs to teach teach the sheep of the church why those things are a waste of your spiritual energy and time. So can I say this as the pastor? Turn off Facebook. Get off of YouTube. Get away from the foolish controversies and, and, and conspiracy theories. It doesn't help your spirit. Not one bit. If anything, it drags you down into the pit of hell. As the shepherd of this church here, please hear my, my loving plea. If you are addicted to that stuff, if you're addicted to politics, if you're addicted to controversy, if you're addicted to conspiracy theories, it does not help you. Don't bring it to me unless you want me to help you get over the addiction. I want nothing to do with it. Just ask my wife and her family. I love them to death, but I don't get into the politics. I stay away from it. Lastly, not only is the elder to teach the false teachers, he's also to teach true believers. Chapter 2 of this letter, Paul really says, teach sound doctrine. And here's how he says to do it. There's four main categories he says to teach sound doctrine to. You teach the older men to be wise and you teach them how to teach the younger men. You teach the older women how to be loving and respectful and wise as well and teaching the younger women. You teach the young men to respect the older men. You teach the younger women to respect the older women. Paul is writing to Titus to and challenging him and charging him, you teach sound doctrine to everybody. I don't see evidence in this text that the early church was divided by generation. Everybody lived together. We didn't have young people's church. We didn't have old people's church. We didn't have cowboy church. Y'all, y'all ever been to a cowboy church? You ever been to a biker church, a Harley Davidson church? I mean, there's all kinds of flavors of churches out there. But I see here that Paul is writing that you teach everybody to respect each other and love each other. And, and again, the focus here in Titus is the role of teaching. Teaching just doesn't belong to one pastor. Teaching also belongs to you. Older men, are you teaching some young men? Older women, and please don't take that as a defense, ladies. I know I can get in trouble for saying that. I'm just repeating what Paul says. Actually, here's the problem, ladies. If you have some age and you have some wisdom, according to what Paul's writing here and according to Scripture, that's a beautiful thing. That's more beautiful than your 20-year-old perfect face and body and hair and everything. 
Because our society has totally distorted true beauty to be youthful. Ladies, you got some wisdom? You're more beautiful than some 20-year-old girls. And according to what Paul writes here to Titus in chapter 2, you have a calling. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. But likewise, he says here in chapter 2 that if you are a young person, you are to learn from your elders. Many of our young families are not here today because their children are sick. But that is something important to learn. Young folks, if someone who is older than you is not mentoring you and loving you, then I would say go embarrass them in love by, as a young person, going to someone who is older and ask them, teach me something. Seriously. Ladies, if you don't know how to can, go ask somebody who does. That's a wonderful time of ministry. If you got something going on in your home, mamas, that you don't know how to handle, I promise you there's somebody in this church who has done that, been there, and they can say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, let me help you. Guys, same thing. Men, if we're struggling to put food on the table, we're struggling at work, there's some men who've been through it too. Amen? Men, if you've got children at home who are disrespectful and they won't listen to you, I promise you there's some men here who have been through that too. See where we're going? The Apostle Paul tells Titus, you have a job to do, you have a responsibility to do, and that is to raise up elders who teach. Not only do we just teach from the pulpit here, but we teach by example. That's one of the things that I'm really praying with for myself, because this is the first time I've ever had to work a job and pastor a church. I'm trying to figure out how that works. (laughs) Still trying to figure that out. I wish I could spend more time with you one-on-one. I'm working on that. Hold me accountable. Okay? We'll get there. But we learn from each other. We teach each other. And what do we teach? What's our model? Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. So, in this book, Paul is writing specifically about establishing an office called the Elder. Next week, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7. And we're going to look at the calling of the first deacons. And we're going to see a difference here between the offices. And we're going to understand the purpose behind them both. Let me close this in prayer.